You know, we not only bring a lot uh, to church on Sunday morning thoughts or sins or whatever, I know oftentimes when I'm in conversation with someone about any one of a host of things, I, I have a main point to make. I have something I want to communicate. And yet I, I make these points and subpoints and counterpoints along the way because while I want to communicate one thing primarily, there's other things that I remember and I say, hold that thought or tell myself, hold that thought. Make the other point or the subpoint or the sub-subpoint or whatever. You know, if you read English literature from the early or mid-1800s or so, uh, the writing style, you know, a sentence could be a paragraph long. And so if you start at the beginning of the sentence paragraph, that was the key thought, but it would digress, 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 and then come back. You had to hold thought after thought after thought to come back to the main point. Digressions. I often speak in digressions. We're going to be in Genesis 11 again this morning, and I, I use this sense about digressions to introduce the thought as we get back into another genealogy, but the text we have been in, in the end of Genesis 10 and into the beginning of Genesis 11, have in a sense been digressions. That is, it's helpful information, digressions always are, helpful information on one hand, but not the key points, not the place that God wants to hang his hat or the place he wants to primarily focus on. Remember back at the end of Genesis 9, Noah's part in the story of God's work in the world ended. Noah died at the end of Genesis 9 after the flood. And then in chapter 10 we start reading about Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And through Noah's three boys God was determined to repopulate the earth. And so we read their genealogies. And if you remember in that it was sons and sons of sons and it was siblings as they spread out and we got kind of some sense in the early world after the flood, whose children went where, where various people groups came from. And in that genealogy, Shem's was, la was last. Of the three boys, Shem's was done last. Shem's line ended in Genesis 10 with Eber's son, Joktan. That's where Shem's descendants stopped. We got into chapter 11, uh, 1 through 9, which we looked at, I think, last week, and the Tower of Babel, in which, contrary to God's command, this certain group of people said, hey, we found a place we like, we're going to hang our hat together, we're not going to do what God said, spread out, fill the earth up with life, but we want a little bit more sense of security, and so we're going to join together, we're going to build a city and a tower, and we're going to find significance and security, salvation of a sort. And so you remember God came down, He said, that's not what I'm going to be a part of, and He confused their languages. Well, those have been, that's been helpful information, but that's been a digression. Shem's line through Joktan, the story of Babel, the city and the tower, etc., that's helpful information because it gives us a sense of the setting in which the main storyline is going to continue, but that's not the main storyline. In Genesis 11, we're going to go back to Shem and his genealogy, but this time, instead of following Joktan, Eber's son Joktan, we're going to follow his brother, Peleg, because Joktan's line isn't the key line. Peleg's is, and it's Peleg's descendants that are the line of promise, and it's Peleg's line that's going to further God's work in the earth by eventually bringing a Savior into the world as he'd promised Adam and Eve he would. 
If you remember in Genesis 10, the genealogy was uh, kind of spread out. You remember sons and then siblings and siblings producing sons and etc., etc. Genesis 11, though, it's linear again, like the early genealogies. That is, it's father to son to son to son to son. Because in this genealogy, God's not concerned with how the world was repopulated after the flood. This goes back to the sense that God's going to keep His promise, He's going to keep His word, and that requires that God have this link through time and through generations from which He's going to produce the Messiah for the world. And then the text we're in this morning is going to end with Peleg's famous son and one of the Bible's most important characters, which is Abraham. And if you think of this, just for a sense of perspective, God will spend more time talking about Abraham and his life and the events of that life than he has all the events up to this point. So the creation, Adam and Eve, the fall, the flood, etc. God will spend more time on the singular life of Abraham than he will have on all that preceded it. So we've seen some digressions. They're helpful because they provide context, but God takes up the main theme that he's, that he's followed all along which is that line of promise. And this is another genealogy, but it's only 10 generations, Zach, so it's not long. So hang in there. It's the last one we're going to do for a while. And by the way, also, this is our last Sunday in Genesis for a while anyway. We started one year and one week ago today in Genesis 1-1. It's taken a year to get 11 chapters, so we're going to take a break, and then we'll pick up with Genesis 12 again later. Genesis 11, verses 10 through 32. And by the way, as I read through this, your your translations, whatever version it is, probably says something like, these are the records of the generations. And it says something like, he had, I'm looking at verse 11, he had other sons and daughters. That's not in the Hebrew, and I'm going to read it straight through. That's inserted in the English, so it's clear. Um, I'm going to read it without those phrases, though. Genesis 11, 10. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpachshad, and he had sons and daughters. Arpachshad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah. And Arpachshad lived 400 years, 403 years after he became the father of Shelah, and he had sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. And Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber, and he had sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, and he had sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Ru. And Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ru, and he had sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and became the father of Sarag. Ru lived 207 years after he became the father of Sarag, and he had sons and daughters. Sarag lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor, and Sarag lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor, and he had sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah, and Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he had sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. These are the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. 
Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. First, by the way, this will be a little short. I'm stretching on these genealogies to get great content, so this will be a little short, almost devotional length this morning. But a few points, important ones, I think. First is, did you notice in this genealogy that the ages of the patriarchs descends very, very quickly? We've mentioned this before when we've talked about the flood and what life may have looked like before the flood, but think back to Noah, the end of chapter 9. Noah lives 950 years. And you remember the patriarchs before the flood, 900 to almost 1,000 years. This was standard ages, standard lifetimes for those folks. But now all of a sudden, we get to Shem, one generation from Noah. Shem lived 600 years and change. Now, by our standard, that's still a long time, but a third less than his father. And then within nine generations, Noah's descendants are down to 150 to 200 years on average. We're not sure what all changed after the flood, but that thing significantly changed so that the earth was far less hospitable to life post-flood is clear. You know, we've talked about perhaps a vapor cloud over the earth before the flood that we may have lost as part of the deluge that flooded the earth. And if there was, a greenhouse uh, effect would have occurred on the earth, which would have made, that would have mitigated temperature extremes, would have made all the earth a little bit more hospitable to life may have changed the kind or the amounts of sunlight that we get that's harmful as well. We're not sure of all the changes that occurred, but clearly changes did occur so that the lifetimes of those after the flood decrease rapidly so that by the time we get to Abram, we're down to not quite life cycles that we have today, but we're down shortened dramatically. If you go to Moses in Psalm 90, in Moses' day, he said, hey, our life is very short. It's a futile life. It's a short life in part because of its brevity. We live about 70 years, Moses said. Or if we're particularly fit or strong or able, we might get 80 years. And you know, if you think about it, even down to today, this is still pretty standard for us. American uh, expected life's a little higher than that, but not much. So with all of our medical acumen and our scientific investigation and medicines and practice, etc., We've still, life cycles have dropped dramatically from before the flood, and we're still getting what Moses recorded in his day, about 70 or 80 years. And think of this just in context or in comparison. If you died in Noah's day at 70 or 80 years, you'd be dying basically in childhood. In other words, if a normal life was 900 to 1,000 years and you die at 70 or 80, you would have died in childhood. And if you extrapolate that thought out into the passages of Isaiah, do you remember Isaiah says these days in the future, men will wear out the work of their hands so that if someone died at 100 years, they'll be considered a youth. Well, that's sort of what you see here. The effects of sin after the flood, these life cycles are dropping dramatically, very dramatically, very quickly. And it's certainly a reminder, God said to Adam and Eve, if you sin, you'll die 
And of course that happened. And you see death kind of accelerating after the flood as the age of these folks dropped. While on one hand it's clear from the genealogy that death is at work because these lifespans are shortening, another interesting thing in this genealogy was its focus. Did you notice that the genealogy focuses actually on living, not on death? Do you remember the earlier genealogies? Do you remember the, the formula was uh, so-and-so lived so long, had a son, he lived so many years, and he died. So-and-so lived had sons, and he died. Do you remember? One after another, after another, after another. And it was a reminder, again, back to Adam and Eve, that if you eat, you'll die, and you'll pass on that death to your descendants into the world. So God made sure that we knew that Adam and Eve's descendants carried on this concept of death because those early genealogies all ended the same way. They all said the same thing, and he died and he died, and he died. Did you notice the phrase that's missing, though, from this genealogy? There's only one person here who's recorded as dying. That's Terah near the end of the list. None of the other men are said to have died. In fact, it says they lived so long, and they had sons, and they lived. It doesn't say they died. We know they died because it gives us their age. But the text doesn't say they died. In other words, the emphasis here is on they lived and they lived. They lived and they lived. The genealogy is an emphasis of life. And just think of this. The stories, the digressions we've had are about these people spreading out kind of in conflict and in opposition to God and His work. And there's death. And there's confusion. God scatters them. God says no to that. But when God takes up the main thread, the main point, the line of promise again, he characterizes it by life, that he's connected to those who are living. If you go to the Gospels, uh, all of the synoptics record this story where the Sadducees, who believed there was no resurrection, that is, you died and that was it, they tell Jesus a story, a ridiculous story, to make their point. And the story was that a woman married a guy and he died, and so he had six other brothers, she married successfully, successively each brother. Each one died. And so their question to Jesus was, in the resurrection, whose wife is she? And Jesus says, well, you've got it wrong for a couple of reasons. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know about God's power. Jesus responds to them, God is the God of the living, that when God said, I'm the God of Abraham, it's not Abraham as dead, it's Abraham as alive that though Abraham's body had died on the earth to God in heaven, Abraham was still alive. The Sadducees looked back at Abraham and the patriarchs and they saw dead men. But God records that these guys were living. And it's this emphasis on life again. Adam and Eve, if you sin, you get death. But those people connected to God, and this is the line of promise, those people connected to God by faith, by God's work in the world, they're connected to the God of life and the God of the living. So this genealogy reminds us that God's at work to bring life in the world. And even though each one of these generations does die, God's focus on this genealogy is that they lived. And if you're connected to Christ through faith, you're connected to the God of life as well. And God's work in your life is life. 
Yes, we'll live. Most of us will have children. Yes, we'll die. But if we're connected to Christ by faith, the key element of our existence is life. It's not death. Or if you think of John 11, when Jesus says, those who believe in me won't die, he didn't mean that their bodies wouldn't corrupt and grow old and die, but that in the truest sense, they were connected to him through faith, to the God and the source of all life, that they would never die in that sense. They would never be without their vital connection to life itself. The world you and I live in, I mean, if you read the newspaper any day, it's a, it's a world filled with death and confusion and violence. In fact, it's a lot like the world right before the flood, characterized by violence. It's a lot like the days of Nimrod, you know, this violent guy who rules over others. But the world we live in is characterized by death and confusion. And as those connected to Christ, it takes a conscious effort or decision of our will to focus on life instead of death because God is in the business of life. And that's what we need to remember and focus on. You can't afford to make death and confusion or disappointments in your own life, another form of death. I thought life would look a certain way and it didn't. I feel like I've died or my hopes have died. You can't make those things, those disappointments, those deaths, your focus because God is the God of the living. By the way, you can't afford to be a cynic. Many of us cultivate a, an attitude of sarcasm and cynicism. And I would argue that that's an, it's an attitude of death because it believes, in a sense, the worst. It believes in death and confusion and chaos. Don't occupy the seat of the cynic. Refuse that because God's the God of life. God is involved in life and that should be our focus as well. Look at the ways God is working. Focus on Him and life. Another thing about this genealogy, and I know these tend to be boring, and I kind of love them because of that, in the sense that if you look, there's great stuff in every one of these genealogies. You know, I've told you in the past, sometimes I like to read them even in my private times because I think God is honoring the people He records. And, and so I want to, with God, honor those people whose names he's taken the time and the trouble to record. But also, I'm uh, tickled that what looks on the surface like something boring really typically has a lot of content in it if we're willing to look for it. And I think that's especially true of the genealogies. For instance, this genealogy that ends with Abraham and Abraham's life is very intentionally tied back to Noah and Noah's life. So just a few examples. Noah was the tenth generation from Adam. Noah had three sons through whom God was going to promote his will on the earth. And Noah had those three sons very late in his life. Okay? In this genealogy that gets us down to Abraham, if you count Shem, Abraham is the tenth generation from Shem in this genealogy. Abraham is one of three brothers from whom God is going to work in this earth, promote his, his work in the world. And Terah, Abraham's father, has Abraham, Abram at this point, and his two other sons late in life as well. In other words, and uh, as a digression, uh, you know, oftentimes we think that as time goes on, humanity gets smarter and smarter. You know, I think it's just the opposite. I think death works in us 
intellectually as well as it does physically over time, that death has this progressive effect. The Jews, when we read this stuff, and if you guys are interested in all, there's lots, a branch of, of literature uh, criticism, broadly called, that looks at texts, how they're put together. When you look at these biblical records, you start realizing they are filled with intention. They're constructed around key themes and key verses, and there's, there's chiasm, there's intentional focus towards a single verse or a particular thought. And we read blithely through, and, and we're totally ignorant of it. But when these stories were being recorded by Moses, or when these were orally being recorded, those initial hearers, we understand, they understood from the construction of the stories, they understood what these main points were. So the early audiences, we understood, they got it, that God was saying, Abram's going to be like Noah. Abram's going to be God's key man. Abram is going to be one of these links in the chain by which God furthers his work in this earth. We skip over and miss these things routinely. Also, just as the sons of Ham and Japheth, Shem's brothers, were going to play a prominent role with Shem's descendants, you see the same thing here with Abraham's brothers' descendants as well. So for instance, Haran's son Lot, of course, figures in Abram's story. If you've read the story, you know that. And Lot goes along with Uncle Abram in his journey through Canaan. And Lot figures prominently in a contentious battle, his shepherds with Abram's, and then in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you go a little further in Lot's uh, speckled, mottled story, it's Lot with his two daughters who produces two of the key groups that become Israel's enemies, Israel, the descendants of Abram. Or think of this, Nahor will have a son named Bethuel, and Bethuel will have a daughter named Rebekah, and Rebekah will become the wife of Abram's future son of promise, Isaac. So these stories are very similar to each other in their construction. God's made sure that we see that if we look for it. It's there. This is a great reminder to me, too. If I read these stories and I recognize that they're filled with intention, that is that it's not a random process that was at work. You know, sometimes we read Abram's story, we start at chapter 12, and we, we forget that Abram is the key link. He, he's the guy that links the rest of the story of Genesis from 12 on to all that came before. You know, these genealogies were important because they were links in the chain of what God was doing. Well, Abram's not disconnected from all that came before him. He's part of that. And even though if you'd looked at his life or looked in the larger world around him, it would have been hard to have looked down and spotted, there's God's man, there's Abram. But when we read the record, we understand Abram's life was one of intention because God was at work. This wasn't random. It wasn't an accident. God was intentionally at work in what might have otherwise appeared to be a chaotic maze. No, God's at work. And he's got this thread of redemption that's stronger than, you know, spider silk for its size, so to speak, and that's intentionally woven throughout. So it might have looked random, and it might have been a life that we look at and say there's digressions and there's chaos, but God says, no, there's intention. I'm in this. I'm at work in this scene. Abram's life in that sense was divinely orchestrated by God, even if he didn't see it at the time. And by the way, I don't think he did. You know, if you read one of Tolkien's books, I, I can't remember if it's The Hobbit or The Fellowship of the Ring, 
the hero, I think Bilbo, could have this wrong. He's in a tight situation. And, and Tolkien, the author, says, now it's fine for you to read this in your armchair at home. But, you know, for Bilbo, he's in the midst of this story, and it's a little different. He's not at ease. He's not comfortable. For him, he's in the midst of it, and it's troublesome. Well, we, we read this and think, well, God was in it, and no problems. But the truth is, this is just what our lives look like, too. I think Abraham would have felt the same way. And, of course, you know, as you know his story, that it was a life filled with disappointment. I mean, decades of disappointment. You know, no different probably than many of ours. But you read this and you realize that, no, God was in it. And God was in the details. God was in Sarai having no children. That was intentional on God's part. That wasn't an accident. God was in her barrenness. Their desire for a child unfulfilled, that was God. They wouldn't have known it at the time. They didn't. But just to say that the confusion or the dead ends or the digression points in your life and mine that we look around and wonder what's going on. We wonder, is God really in control? Am I in this on my own? Is my life going anywhere? Does it count for anything? This is just the story of everybody else in the Bible too. We read their story and we understand God was at work. But they didn't see that at the time necessarily. It didn't look like necessarily life in, of intention. We look back and say, yes, we see it. But that same thing goes on in our life today. And we can look back and we can take heart or encouragement that God was at work there in this line of promise and he's at work in ours as well. And think of this. If you've trusted in Christ as your savior, you are no less than Abraham in the line of promise. You're, you're one of these folks that God said was gonna come about in the world. And your life in that sense is no more an accident than Abraham's was. God's no less at work in your life today confusing with digressions and dead ends as it may seem or be no less at work in your life today than he was in Abraham's. And I do think this is one of those things that requires faith on our part to believe that God in the midst of a life that's not going the way I thought it would. How do I look at this? How do I think about this? I'm disappointed. I've experienced death. I thought life would look like this, it doesn't. I thought I would be like this, I'm not, etc., etc., etc. But no, God's in the midst of that. As those who know Christ through faith, you're in this same line. And you are therefore also part of what God's doing in the world today. So all of us in this sense, we're no less in this line than Abraham. <laughs> And God's no less intentionally working in your life and mine than he was in Abraham's or in this whole genealogy all along the way. I'll close with a couple thoughts. The genealogies remind us, this one especially for me, that whatever else is going on in life, God is in control and he has purpose for your life, whether you see it now or not. It also reminds me of this. Be careful about making digressions your focus. We could hang out in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11, the first half, and they're great stories and it's great information. It's God's word. I don't mean that it's inferior. But that's not the main point. 
And you and I may, may be tempted at various times and in various places to try to make a digression in our own life the main focus. And God's not going to let us. We may think, I'd really like to do, I don't know, sailboats. Uh, I want to make my life sailboats. And God may say, no, you know, this is where your life's going. That's nice for a time. I'm going to use this in your life, or I'll use somebody else for you, or you for someone else. But that's not where I'm taking you. Be careful about trying to make digressions the main focus in your life. Accept them for what they are, something that's temporary, something that may be important in its own way, has its own value, informs the larger world that God has you a part of, but is not the main thing God wants you involved in. Be willing to let those things go so that you can get on with the main thrust God has for your life. Don't assume that the larger context of the world you're living in guides what God has for your life. And whether we're thinking about the way the earth was being populated and and remember the mass of people were moving to the east to that plain to build something that looked important and here God is picking an individual of no significance with no child and he's moving them not east, he's moving them west. Abram's life was called counter to everything else that was going on around him. Be careful about taking your cues from the the maze or the confusing larger world around you, but ask God to help you focus on the things He's doing in your life. Be willing to let go of lesser pursuits, digressions, dead ends, whatever those things may be, so that you can focus on the people and the places God means to use you in His work of redemption. And by the way, of course, as He does that, He's revealing more and more of himself and his life to you along the way. Let me close with a quote from Os Guinness in his book, The Call. By the way, if you enjoy reading, this book, The Call, is probably one of the most important books I've read in the last five years, for me personally at least. It's one of those books that I've marked up extensively and, and taken many quotes out of, but kind of along this line, Os Guinness said this, God calls men and women who will be committed to their life tasks with no reservations, no retreats, no regrets. In pursuit of this quest, no pettiness is so petty that it disturbs their meaning. We could say no digression, no dead end. No task is so immense that it daunts the courage of their calling. They engage in the world on the world's terms, that is, they're living out their life in the larger maze or confusing context, yet they are never diverted from their quest because they always have an eye to interests and ideals that are invisible to the eyes of others. We would say the eyes of faith. Their eyes are on Christ. Such are the people who will always be found in the gap. They are the ones prepared for such a time as this. People after God's own heart, they are ready to read the signs of the time and serve His purpose in their generation. Let's pray. Lord, I know I look at my own life and wonder often how I got where I'm at. It's not where I intended to be. It doesn't look the way I thought it would look. And there's certainly been disappointments and dead ends along the way. Lord, this is true for all of us here. Lord, it was true for Abraham. It was true for all the key figures 
in the record of redemption you recorded for us in the pages of the Bible. Lord God, help us to exemplify the faith of Abram, an old guy who was promised a son, a son of promise, another link in the chain of redemption. Lord, help us to trust that you're at work in our life even when it looks like you're not. Lord, help us to trust that you're at work to accomplish your work in us and through us no less than you were in Abram in his day. Father, thanks that all your good plans will be accomplished on this earth and in each one of us. You're the omnipotent God. No one can thwart your purposes. Help us to hang our hats on you and your word. Help us to let go of the smaller things that are part of our life to embrace the key things, Lord, you want us to be a part of. In Jesus' name, amen.